Bible says in John chapter 19, by the way, we're going back to John. We're going to finish John. Trust me, we will finish John. We, for those of you that don't know, we've been working systematically through the book of John. And every now and then we get, um, <clears throat> we have to take care of other things. But we're right back into John, picking up from where we left. We're going to John chapter 19. Let's go to verse 16, and I'll read through verse 30. It says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which is Aramaic called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, quote, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the, uh, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Mother or woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And here we see what Jesus did in the next portion. It says, And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst, in order to fulfill Scripture. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, if you had to go onto the internet and you searched out what is the gospel, and you find on the different YouTube channels three minutes, five minute explanations of the gospel you will find many, many different ways of explaining the gospel. So it's always been interesting to me how the gospel can be explained in so many different ways. And to me, this is so precious, this is so important, because this is so on point. A church without the gospel is no church. The day we lose the gospel, we are an organization void of the power of God because the Bible says the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto what? Salvation. 
Therefore, the moment the gospel becomes obscure here within our church, we are no longer a church. And I remember about a decade ago, I was standing right here, and I don't, it wasn't quite 10 years ago because we weren't here yet 10 years ago, but I, we were already in this building, and it was when we had just moved here. I remember standing here and saying, hey, why don't we all divide up into groups? This is a Wednesday midweek service, and uh, there were more people than here right now. But we all divided into four different groups, and I said, why don't you guys talk to, amongst yourselves and tell each other, why are you sure that you are saved? What makes you so sure that it, when, you, when your heart beats its last, that you will be entering into glory? And then they discussed amongst themselves, and I said, now from each one of these four groups, why don't we have one person come up and tell their testimony? Why are you saved? And I remember this lady <laughs> coming up. Some of you may have been here that night. I know, Tina, you were. And she said, you were the kids. And she said, well, this is, this is how I know I'm saved. I was asking God if I'm saved. And as I was asking God if I'm, God, am I really saved? In my mind, I got a picture of a penny right here, <laughs> a picture of a penny. We'll make it an illustrated sermon. Thank you, Linda. I'll get it back to you afterwards. And she says, I got a picture of a penny. And, and I thought, why do I have a picture of a penny? And when I looked down, there lay a penny. I'm like, I'm saved. God confirmed I'm saved. And everybody was like, oh, God, please give that to me too. Not the penny, but the affirmation. And when, when that testimony was told, I literally had nightmares that night. I woke up in cold sweats. And I thought, we're not even at church. <laughs> we're not, how, how is this even that somebody would think that is what tells them they saved? What saves you? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation no matter how you feel. We're saved by grace through faith. And if you have faith in Jesus Christ, trust me, this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. And if He gave you that gift, in other words, if you do have faith in Jesus Christ, you were given that gift. You, it is not of man. It's not of your own. It is a gift. It's not even your faith. Let me quote that again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, that grace is not from you. God gave it to you when you were His enemy. And that faith was not yours. God gave it to you when He gave you a brand new heart. That has faith in Christ. Okay? And so this is, the, this is how you know you're saved. You have faith. In Jesus Christ. Not because you imagined a penny, but because you have faith in Jesus Christ. You have faith in Jesus Christ unto what? In what He did for you on the cross. What did He do for you on the cross? This is what we're looking at today. Every time Jesus told a parable, 
He was, in fact, explaining the gospel. Every parable is about the gospel, about the kingdom. People often think that Jesus designed parables to make things clear. I used to say, I used to say that oftentimes. <coughs> Jesus gave us natural stories in order to explain supernatural truths. Well, there's a little truth in that, but Jesus tells us why he was telling, uh, explaining truths in parables. You see, the truth is Jesus designed parables to make things obscure. In other words, to hide things from those who were not ease. He says it clearly. Now, you might go like, no, everybody's God's children. I know that's your, that might be a thought, but that's not a biblical thought. These parables is an earthly story to explain a heavenly meaning, but in parable form in order to hide it from certain people and to reveal it only to others. The parables explain secrets. Matthew 13, 10, and 11, the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? Couldn't be asked in clearer terms. The disciples said, why are you telling us parables? Just tell us the real thing. He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. In other words, the gospel came to you, but did not come to them. These are sacred secrets God is leading us to when He tells us a parable. So we have to allow God to share these sacred secrets with us because we have believing hearts. You see, all parables talk about the kingdom of God. They're all gospel parables. In other words, the gospel story in an earthly context. They explain how salvation takes place. And in studying a parable, we will have a clear view of what actually took place at the crucifixion on the hill called Calvary. So that's what we read this morning. John 19, verse 16 through 30 is the, is the story of the crucifixion or an account of the crucifixion. And I hear more and more people saying, well, you know, what I have a problem with Christianity is, why did Jesus actually have to die? I mean, God can do whatever He wants. Yes, He can. Well, then why didn't He just save everybody? Why did He have to kill His own son? Sounds like cosmic child abuse. In order to save you. Well, I do want to give you a secret about God. And that is that, no, all things are not possible for God. When he said, all things are possible for me, he was answering the disciples who said, well, how's it possible that I could get saved? He said, what's impossible with you is possible with God. In other words, you cannot save yourself, but I can save you. You're going to like, oh no, Jacques, now this is where our swords cross. With God, all things are possible. He can do anything he wants. No. How about lying? Doesn't it say, for God is not a man that he should lie? God cannot lie. 
Every time he says something, it becomes truth. It is truth. Job said it this way, Can God create a rock so big that He cannot move it? Answer that question. Charlie, can God create a rock so big that He Himself can't move it? It's too big. Either He cannot create it so big, or He can, and therefore He cannot move it, but somehow He cannot do something. But God cannot lie. God cannot tempt you. You know what else God cannot be? Is unjust. He cannot be unjust. Why must God kill Jesus? Why didn't He just forgive everybody? Well, why don't you ask the person who's been abused from childhood? What they would think of God if God would just forgive everybody. And the injustices of the world, the sins of the world, was never paid for somewhere. God is a just God. He cannot be unjust. That's why there was a crucifixion. So that all your sins, all God's wrath against your sins could be punished on the cross instead of you having to pay for those sins in hell. But every sin will be paid for in this life or the next, in Christ or in hell forever. Because God is just and He cannot be unjust. So for us to understand the gospel, we can go to any parable and let the parable explain to us what happened right here in John 19. For those of you that are in Bible school, we talked about the historical principle. We talked about that's a hermeneutic uh, process of understanding Scripture. One of the ways to understand Scripture is to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, right? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's your safest way of knowing that you've interpreted that Scripture the right way. So what we're doing is we're going to go to a parable so that the parable can interpret the cross. All right? This parable that we're going to find in Matthew 13 is going to explain to us what happened in John 19. So the Bible says right here, Jesus speaking in this parable in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, <clears throat> he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Now, Again, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. It's an amazing thing. Right there in two sentences, Jesus repeats the gospel twice. <laughs> you see, a merchant man who loves pearls was traveling the world around and finds this one priceless pearl. He then sells everything he has in order to purchase that very pearl that he found. So what I'd like for us to do when you exegete Scripture, you don't just look at what it says. You also qualify, uh, you're also qualified by all the things it's not saying. Because this is where we can derail from scriptural truth is when we don't know what it's not saying and we interpret it as things that it's not saying. And so here's the first thing it's not saying is that the merchant is the lost sinner in search of salvation. 
Now, I've taught that many times in this manner, like this sinner, he finds Jesus or he finds salvation, and this is a price, this is a pearl of great price to the point where I, would, will, I was willing to give all that I am, deny self, and follow him. Well, that's not what this is. The reason that it's not accurate is because the sinner is never in search for God or for salvation. Romans 3.11 says, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. That includes the person sitting next to you. You know, that's the most beautiful thing about the gospel, is that God, as a matter of fact, He chose you and He came to you and He saved you from the flames while you were yet His enemy. The Bible says that. When, while we were yet His enemies, He loved us. He foreknew us. He foreloved us. And those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified on the cross. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. All of those terms in the past tense. Foreknew. Predestined, past tense. Called, past tense. He also justified, past tense. He also glorified, past tense. When did He do this in the past? 2,000 years ago. But also before the foundations of the earth. <laughs> he called you. Isn't that an amazing thing? When you understand the gospel, it strips you from all self-righteousness. And you go like, God chose me because I was His enemy? No, not because you were His enemy. Well, God chose me because I chose Him. No, that's open theism. God, because God doesn't, God knows all things. He doesn't learn new things. He doesn't look down the corridors of time to see what Steve's going to do. And then when he sees Steve's choos Steve chooses him, he goes, okay, I'll choose Steve. That means God is standing on the sidelines learning what people are doing. God learns nothing. Why? Because that's contrary to a foundational doctrine called omniscience of God. He knows all things. He knows all things. So I was his enemy and I didn't choose him. I didn't want him. I didn't seek him. It says Romans 3.11, there is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. Yet he still came and saved me. You know what this is? This is the gospel working in me <clears throat> and working in you to, to obey Jesus' command that says, now pray for your enemies. Why should I pray for my enemies? Because He saved you while you were His enemy. You see that? You can have mercy on people when they don't deserve it because you received mercy when you didn't deserve it. You can be long-suffering with people when they don't deserve it because... God was long-suffering with you when you didn't deserve it. See? You can love on your enemies and pray for them while they're your enemies because they're not as big of an enemy to you as you were to God, yet God still saved you while you were yet His enemy. And you see that the gospel actually really touches absolutely every part of our lives. It touches our marriage. It touches our child-rearing. It touches our relationships. It touches the way I go to work. Do all things for the glory of God. I forgive, not because somebody repented. No, because I've been forgiven for so much I haven't even repented for. 
You go like, I've repented for every sin. You don't know all your sins. <laughs> he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. Yet I've got to treat everybody else as their sins deserve. The only person that does this is the person who lacks the understanding of the gospel. So my point is that the gospel, the gospel is like yeast. I guess sin is like yeast. But the gospel, the gospel goes into every part of our lives. And here we see that this merchant is not the lost sinner in search of God because the Bible says in Romans 3.11, no one seeks God. No, because we're all enemies of God as fallen men. The merchant wasn't looking for God. God seeks man. Man does not seek after God. Adam didn't run after God. God came after Adam. The truth is, if you desire to have a relationship with God, which I believe you do, it is because He gave you that desire in the first place. He gave, that you, he gave you that heart in the first place. I want to just keep repeating this because I know that it helps people. Did God give you a heart of flesh because you believed? Or did you believe because God gave you a heart of flesh? Did you repent... Well, let me say it the other way around. Did God give you this heart of flesh because you repented and therefore He gave you a heart of flesh? Or did you repent because He gave you a heart of flesh so that you could repent, so that you can believe? Of course. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. It takes God to want God. So our conclusion is man does not seek God, therefore the merchant does not represent sinful man in search of salvation in this story. So our story, don't forget it, it's a merchant. This is like the kingdom of God. Looking for fine pearls, he finds one great one and he goes about selling everything. He comes back and he purchases that pearl. Who is this merchant? <clears throat> Number two. Secondly, the way this is oftentimes interpreted is that the merchant man is the sinner seeking Christ. Christ is that pearl. Some say it's God, salvation. Others say it's Christ. And when he finds Christ, he sells all that he has. He puts himself on the cross, dies to self in order to buy Christ. Well, that's not possible because the sinner, number one, is bankrupt. And secondly, in other words, he has nothing to purchase Christ with. Secondly, Christ cannot be purchased, so it cannot be Christ. This, this pearl of great price cannot be God, cannot be salvation, cannot be Jesus. I mean, what would lost man, dead in his sins, have to offer to buy Christ with? He has nothing. So our conclusion here is that the merchant who buys the pearl is not a man, is not man because man has nothing to buy Christ with not a sinner in search of God or salvation. He's not interested. So the question is, what is this pearl of great price? If we understood this, we can understand the parable. If we understand the parable, we can understand John 19. What was Jesus doing when He hung on the cross for our sins? Well, the pearl of great price is the church. It's you. The church of Jesus Christ, universal. 
the pearl of great price. The merchant is Jesus who purchases this church with his own precious blood. He sells everything he has, his very own life. Just like this merchant comes back to purchase the pearl of great price after he sold everything he had, so also Christ comes back from the dead after making the highest payment, which is with his life. So here's the church. He gives all he has on the cross. He comes back from the dead and he purchases this pearl of great price. So how are pearls made? It's interesting. See, the formation of a pearl is a wonderful picture of the church, as a matter of fact. Inside the clam comes a small piece of dirt, sand, mud. The small piece of dirt embeds itself in the clam. Then the oyster or the clam starts covering this piece of dirt with a certain substance, a film, over and over and over and over and over and over again. And here we have something very ugly, dirt, from which we are made, being covered over and over and over again until it becomes beautiful. You see, the pearl goes from dirt to beauty. And so also because of Christ, the church has gone from guilt to glory. Remember, He didn't save you because you were valuable, because you were awesome. No, it's because He loved you. He saved you. That was His motivation for salvation. See, God doesn't love us because we are valuable. We are valuable because He loved us. This is one of the biggest truths that stripped me from self-righteousness when I came into the doctrines of grace. You know, oftentimes, you get two people and they talk about doctrines, and then you get the guy that he's kind of like, ah, everything's going to pan out. Like, you know, God can do whatever He wants. He loves me. It's all great. The, the purpose for doctrine is this is God's means by which He does whatever He needs to do within you. God works in you by establishing His teachings inside of you. I'll never forget when I came into the doctrine of total depravity was the first time I had a desperate need for Christ to save me. Because until you, until you understand a, that doctrine, you don't understand what you're getting saved from. <laughs> and if that, I don't have a lot to get saved from. If you trivialize sin's effect upon human nature, you're trivializing Christ's work upon a cross. If you have a small view of sin, you have a small view of a Savior that saved you from that sin. But if you have a complete, wide-scoped perspective of the entire depth, if you can, if it's possible, of what sin has done to you and who you really are compared to a perfectly holy God, now suddenly the, the, the work of Christ upon, a, upon the cross, your whole life, your whole life is built around this one concept of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what happens oftentimes in a church is the pressure is placed upon the pulpit Give us something new I haven't heard before, Pastor. <laughs> well, let me tell you the gospel. Ah, I've heard that one before. If, 
if there is unforgiveness in your life, if there's a lack of, of patience in you, if there is a lack of inability of being kind to others and showing goodness, and if there's, if there's still need for you to live in sacrificially and all of the above, if you still need to put your marriage together, all of these things, if it's not going to be established and redeemed by the gospel, it's never going to be redeemed. You can hold your marriage together, psychologically speaking, and make it look like this is great. But until it starts reflecting the gospel, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did He love the church? He gave Himself up for her. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband like the church submits to Christ. Like the gospel is what redeems it. Nothing else will succeed. And that's how God has chosen to redeem the world, with the gospel. With the gospel. And so um, don't let people put that pressure on you like, hey, what's new? Give me a deeper revel revelation. May we never preach what's never been heard before. May we never come up with doctrines and, and, and hopes and encouragements that that has never been preached, taught, written of. So you've never heard enough of the gospel. And here we see in this parable that Jesus is speaking, in a parable in order to hide this truth from some and reveal it to others, limited atonement, we see that the pearl of great price is in fact the church that Jesus went away for. He sold everything he had, his life. He came back and purchased this great price, this great pearl with the highest price. And we see that his purchase of the church is what gives the church her value. Just like any valuable stone, the value exists in what somebody else is willing to pay for. If you think of the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa is worth almost a billion dollars, but yet if you look at the canvas, the paint, and the wood that frame they built it with, what is that? Seven bucks, 50 cents, I don't know. <laughs> but why is it almost a worth a billion dollars? That's what people are willing to pay for it. And so Jesus didn't come because I was valuable. He came to purchase me, which makes me valuable. Now my value isn't hanging on who I am, but on who Christ is and how much He paid for to redeem us. The church is the pearl of great price. And you are not the church, but a member, a stone within the temple. A stone within the temple. The apostles, the foundation stones, Jesus, the cornerstone, you and I, stones with Peter. We build, well, he is the foundation stone with the other apostles. And we are the temple. Each stone fitting together. He did say he'll tear down this temple and he will 
raise it back up in three days. That's his body. And that's you and I today. So our value comes from the fact that Christ is willing to purchase us with his life. So the third question is, how was this pearl bought? The Bible says, this merchant man sold all that he had and bought this pearl. And John 19, 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they lifted up a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up the Spirit. You see, the moment the payment is received, goods change ownership. Notice that? You take a candy bar, you walk up to the cash register. They say, that's going to be, that's going to be $14.75. I'm like, hi, why not? <laughs> and uh, the moment I give her the $14.75, the moment she receives it, or he, sorry, receives it, that moment, they can no longer withhold this candy bar from me. It is now mine. I'll give you another example. <laughs> if you, Charlie, if you ever need to be bailed out, all right, call me. I'll pray for you. <laughs> I will pray for you. No, but let's say Charlie calls me one night and he goes, Jacques, I need to get bailed out. I'm like, how much is it, Charlie? He says, uh, $25. I'm like, all right. I go over there, and the moment that clerk receives my $25, they can no longer hold Charlie. He has to walk out, right? The moment that price is paid, that penalty is paid, the moment it's received, that's the moment ownership changes. The prisoner can walk right out. My point that I'm making here is the moment that Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full, is the moment you were set free from the bondage. Remember, those whom he foreknew, past tense. He also predestined past tense. He also called past tense. He justified past tense. He glorified past tense. You family of God, have been thoroughly saved in every way the moment Jesus said, it is finished. That's why you believe today. Because of what He did back then. When He said, it is finished, death could no longer hold you because He purchased you. He paid for you. The moment God received that payment... Your salvation was sure. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 through 20, the Bible says, now, of course, you can, um, you can study the doctrine of limited atonement yourself, and this is very much in line with that doctrine, which has a huge effect upon a person's life. You see, unconditional election makes you go, I mean, uh, total depravity makes you go like, i got no self-righteousness. I'm completely stripped of all my self-righteousness. <laughs> I am in such great need of a Savior. Yeah. And now I understand it. Because if you, go, if you walk around and you tell people, hey, like, 
Jesus can save you. They go like, from what? He will forgive you. Are you saying I'm a sinner? People are now offended by hearing what God can do for them. Why? Because they've completely lost any coherent thought as to how sinful and lost they really are. They have no idea what to be saved from, what they need to be saved from, how sinful they really are. Total depravity works that in you. Unconditional election humbles you that he would even do for you what he did while you were his, yet his enemy. Limited atonement, this that we're looking at here right now, gives you some sense of exclusivity. He says, I will only share in parables because it's for you, not for everybody else. That's why I speak in parables. That exclusivity. Don't, how, how does the wife know that she's loved by her husband? Because of exclusivity. He chose her, and he's now exclusive to her. This is her affirmation that she's loved by him. And people always attempt to get others to believe that God loves them. And so you have like a Todd White, and you know, like, like but Jesus loves you, dude. Jesus loves you, bro. Don't you get it? Like, well, Todd, teach them the doctrine of limited atonement. They will get it. <laughs> it's the doctrine. It's what God says that makes a person, that changes a person, not how you convince them. If Todd can talk somebody into believing Jesus loves them, somebody else can talk them out of the fact that Jesus loves them. But if they understand the doctrines of Scripture, why would they ever question? How could they question? How could they question? 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, And do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? What? You are not your own. What? My body? My no, you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are, which are God's. All of you, all of what you are, belongs to God. God looks at the entire you and He says, Mine. You belong to Him. He purchased you. He paid for you. When He said, it is finished, paid in full, there was a change in ownership. Nobody could, death can't hold you anymore. So for whom did Christ die? We'll close with this question. Who did Christ die for? Who did he, this merchant, go and sell everything he had in order to purchase this? Purchase this. Who specifically did Jesus hang on that cross for to buy, to purchase, to redeem, to save? Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore... Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. He's speaking to leaders, to elders. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking to the overseers. 
He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, here we go, which he has purchased, which he purchased with his own blood. Who did Jesus purchase with his blood on the cross? The church. The church. That's who he purchased. The church. This is the reason. The most thankful person in all the world is the true believer. The most grateful person in all the world is the true believer. Again, folks, this is so beautiful. The gospel redeems every part of your life, including your ingratitude. <laughs> Think about it. Think about it. How can, how can you train and raise somebody in gratitude? I used to think what you do is you go like, hey, son, look at this picture. You see these kids? You see these hungry kids? You see how thin they are? <laughs> you better be thankful. <laughs> I mean, who's that ever worked for? How come is America not yet grateful? We've seen enough of those pictures. I'm like, all right, I'm taking my kid on a missions trip, teaching gratitude. <laughs> Sitting on an airplane, flying 24 hours, eating peanuts and watching movies all day. I'm trying to teach him gratitude. <laughs> He's like, man, we had a wonderful trip. How do you teach somebody gratitude? Yeah. The way you teach somebody gratitude is when they start understanding all that God did for them when they deserve nothing of it. All they deserved was hell, and God had mercy. God had mercy. And if you understand the gospel, you understand that. And if you understand that, you cannot but respond with gratitude. I mean, if God was so good to me, I can only respond in one way, and that is with gratitude. There's no way for me to repay Him. But I can be thankful, and that's why. This is the reason the most thankful person in all the world is the true believer, the one who understands and obeys the gospel. Jesus saw that dirt that was turned into a pearl of great price. After God elected her and gave her to him, he went and he died on the cross. He came back and purchased her when he rose from the dead. And that's the day you became Christ's. Because he works in you. He works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your grace is truly amazing. That, you've had, that you went to such extents to save your enemies. How can we not respond in loving ours and praying for them? You were good to us when we deserved nothing good from your hand. How can we not also now Show goodness to those who might not deserve any goodness from us. You were so sacrificial 
when you hung on that cross for those who were spitting at you, rejecting you. You were sacrificial. For God in this way loved that He gave His Son. And God, that we also in this way may love by being sacrificial, living sacrificially before you toward others. And Lord, as we look into this principle, or as we look into your gospel, as we look through this parable, and we understand all that you did for us, turn this dirt into glory, our guilt into glory. It's all your work. One day you will put crowns on people's heads, but they will lay it at your feet because it was all yours to begin with. Thank you for the work that you have done in us. Now, Lord, I pray that you continue to reveal your gospel to us as you keep on lifting us to higher places in you. In Jesus' name, amen.